Little did that group of women who got up so early and who went to the tomb of Jesus realize that what they would be witnessing that Sunday was the greatest event of human history. Ordinary women with ordinary names like Mary and Joanna walking through the ordinary familiar streets of Jerusalem and beyond to the outside of the city boundary and suddenly seeing this extraordinary sight. The massive stone sealing the grave of Jesus had been rolled to one side. The cave empty apart from grave clothes. The body of Jesus missing and no sign of it being a robbery. And two shining men greet them and say words that underline that they were not only witnessing an extraordinary sight, but they were witnessing an event of enormous significance. He is not here, said these two angels. He has been raised. This morning is the day the Christian church dances for joy, or the British equivalent. This morning is the day we affirm that the resurrection of Jesus is the missing clue that makes sense of the whole gospel story. On this day, God declared this world to be his world. God declared that violence and hatred and sin and death never have the last word. His redeeming purpose has the last word. But of course, for many people in St. Andrews, for many people perhaps in our families and certainly beyond, their response to this day is very different. I wanted two of you to smile at this. Drove up to a lady on the way to the seven o'clock service near us and offered her a lift to the service this morning. She looked very upset and said, I'm going to get my paper. I don't want to be coming. And there are many people like that, perhaps around, where the words of the disciples in verse 11 would be more accurate. They did not believe the women, for their words seemed to them like nonsense. For many people, reasonable, thoughtful, non-argumentative people, 
The Easter story is just a religious myth born out of an understandable desire to, to honour Jesus Christ. They would side with the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume in his assertion that a testimony to a miracle has always to be doubted unless the falsehood of that testimony is even more miraculous. Many people love the resurrection story. Many people are moved by it. But they smile in amazement at the historical and theological seriousness with which Christians take it. So what is so helpful about Luke's account of Easter morning is that he symbolizes this clash, if you like, between two worldviews. Hardly wanting to impute this worldview to the disciples, but one worldview is an open world where the transcendent can break in and the living God can draw near and raise a Jesus of Nazareth from the grave. The other is the view of a world as closed, where there is no reality beyond space and time and rational, examinable evidence, where talk of resurrection and life after death and resurrection bodies like those disciples just seems like nonsense. This past week, some of us have enjoyed some moving Holy Week meditations based around the passion story and various pieces of art. One famous painting we did not look at is this one by Hans Holbein, entitled The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb. It was at the time, and it still is, a deeply disturbing canvas. The viewer looks in at the, size, in the, the side of the tomb where a life-sized body bearing the marks of torture and decomposition can be seen. Notice the picture is entirely naturalistic. There are no sacred symbols. There are no signs of hope. There is no hint of resurrection. When the Russian novelist Dostoevsky saw this painting in Baal in the 1950s, he says he was completely overwhelmed with this painting. And he refers to it in his novel, The Idiot, and he says this, as one looks at the dead body of this tortured man, one cannot help asking, if such a corpse had been seen by all his disciples and by the women that followed him, how could they possibly believe that the martyr would rise again? It just seemed like nonsense. So look for a moment more closely at Luke's telling of this Easter morning story. As the women enter 
the cemetery garden and approach the grave, suddenly their perplexity grows. What they witness is not at all what they were expecting. And there is a wondering, a panic, a fear, puzzlement. How on earth has this massive gravestone been rolled away? We ourselves were wondering how we were going to handle it. Have we come to the wrong grave? No, this is unmistakably the new one owned by Joseph of Arimathea that we were standing beside on Friday night. Has some disgusting grave robber been here? No, why would a grave robber take time to unravel the grave clothes and get past the soldiers? And then as we've heard, suddenly these women are confronted by two men in clothes that gleam like lightning. And they ask this question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's as if the angels were saying, what you are doing just does not make sense. From heaven's perspective, you are crazy. You don't check your blood levels when you go into an ice cream parlor. You don't look for a Scotsman in a Morris dancing class. So why on earth are you looking for the living in a cemetery? And then alongside this heavenly incredulity, a rebuke. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Heaven's utter astonishment. If this is God's world, which he made and he maintains, which he governs and which he has promised to redeem, would you expect it to be a problem that God could raise his son and vindicate his son and declare him to be Lord over all. This is the worldview that Christians share. And the women get it. Then they remembered his words, Luke says. These women who had been so faithful throughout his ministry, they run back to the apostles with this momentous news Jesus, the one we love, is alive. And in their piety and in their simple faith, they share heaven's perspective. And then the contrast. The 11 disciples, ironically, so well tutored for three years, who again and again as we've been thinking about over these last weeks, following Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem, have been told of the coming cross and resurrection. And yet they listen to these women with earthly unbelief. And with perhaps more than a touch of male superiority, it says these women's words seem to them like nonsense. Or as one version puts it, it seemed to them like 
an idle tale. So here is this clash of two worldviews, which Luke brilliantly portrays. Heaven's viewpoint through the angels. What are you doing? Looking for the living one in a cemetery? It makes absolutely no sense. And earth, represented ironically by the disciples, what on earth are you saying? It seems to make absolutely no sense. I wonder what world perspective you share this morning. Of course, our world and their world is not so simply divided. There are not just ardent atheists and enthusiastic believers and indifferent agnostics in the world in which we live. Most secular people, I find, are actually deeply ambivalent. As one writer quips, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. For many, there is a stated denial of God, and yet a recognition of a haunting, unexplainable presence. Listen to the biographer of the late Steve Jobs of Apple. This is what the biography writes. One sunny afternoon, when Jobs wasn't feeling very well, he sat in the garden behind his house. And uh, reading from this perspective, he died in 2011. It's rather sad. He reflected on death. Jobs talked about his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism and his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 55 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating odds out of a desire to believe in the afterlife. I like to think that there is something out there, something that survives after you die. He felt silent for a long time. On the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch, he says, click, and you're gone. Then he paused and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put an on-off switch on Apple devices. And that sort of ambivalence is shared, I suspect, by many, many people in Scotland today. How does Luke speak to this issue? Well, first, he points us to the story of Peter. If you look in the text at verse 12, you get this fascinating comment, not in all the manuscripts, but there it is. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself about what had happened. Here is Peter still smarting, no doubt, from all that had happened and how he had failed Jesus. But not so dismissive now. 
He's not so sure of his colleagues' skepticism. And so Peter goes alone to check for the evidence. And he too finds the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. He noticed the total oddity of nothing having happened to the grave clothes. They were just lying there, perhaps a bit like a chrysalis as the butterfly has left. Reminds me of that exchange in one of Sherlock Holmes' mysteries. Is there any other point you wish to draw to my attention? Asks the sleuth. To the curious incident of the dog in the night, perhaps. Client. The dog did nothing in the night. Sherlock Holmes. That was the curious incident. Why these grave clothes? So the first thing Luke encourages us to do, like Peter, is to examine the evidence ourselves. How, for example, are we to explain the spontaneous emergence and almost explosive growth of the Christian faith if it was simply in the name of a defeated, crucified leader. As Hans Kung, the Catholic scholar, puts it, what exactly was it that gave the impetus to a truly world-transforming religion emerging from the gallows where a man, man was hanging in shame. Only Jesus raised from the dead explains that. Or how are we to explain a reality that is often overlooked? That the first Jewish Christians chose suddenly to meet and to celebrate on the first day of the week. How awkward it must have been for many of them. Some of them may well have lost their jobs because of the transfer of their day of worship. Or again, how are we to explain the prominence of the women here in Luke's account and in the others? For as has often been remarked, in a deeply patriarchal society, if this story was being made up, aiming to convince, you would never enlist as your major witnesses grieving women. Like Peter breaking rank, we are to look at the evidence for ourselves. As I came back from the early seven o'clock service, I was talking to Donald, the university chaplain, who was giving out programs for this morning. And I know that we had printed 500, and he said we had two left. And seeing I had my own copy, that means there were 499 people at least there this morning. Imagine Eaton viewing those 499. Their accounts of what happened at the 7 a.m. service might have slightly differed, but there would be an awful lot in common. And at one point, the Apostle Paul says, 500 people saw Jesus risen at one particular time. And the second way that Luke encourages us to look to the heavenly perspective, 
to look to the perspective that Christ truly is risen is to reflect on the significance of this day. Notice in verse 1 of Luke 24 that this discovery of the empty tomb happens on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. It was a new week, it was a new day, it was a new dawn. And without being too poetic about it, it all hints to a new dawn of a whole new day, a whole new world order that has broken into our world with the resurrection of Jesus. And notice how Luke emphasizes this by telling uniquely for Luke the whole story of Easter from the perspective of one day. So look at Luke's one resurrection day. In the morning, there are the clues that we're thinking of now. In the afternoon, as we're going to think about at this evening's service, there is the discovery of two people walking to Emmaus. And in the evening, there is confirmation as the risen Christ appears to all the eleven and others. This is not one unusual special day. This for Luke is the first day of the beginning of a new creation. And finally for Luke, he encourages us to be open to a personal encounter. Luke is no dispassionate reporter. He is a deeply persuaded believer and yet an example of a sober historian. Someone who sees things. He's learned to see things from heaven's perspective. And at two key points, he uses a key loaded word. He calls Jesus of Nazareth, Lord. There it is in verse 3. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And there it is again in verse 34. It is true, the Lord has risen. For Luke, central to resurrection morning, is the decisive evidence that this Jesus is all he ever claimed to be, victorious and Messiah and King and Son of God and Saviour and therefore Lord, sharing the very honour and the very status of the Father. Their words seem like nonsense, is the comment about the disciples, but not for long. Have you ever noticed that Luke's gospel begins and ends with angels saying astonishing things to very ordinary people? The gospel begins by an angel saying to Bethlehem shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born for you. And here at the end of the same gospel, two angels to a group of ordinary Jerusalem women. Why, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why indeed? He is not lying cold in a cemetery. He is alive and he is reigning and he is the Lord and he is at work and he is drawing near and we, I, can meet the risen Lord today.